Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hunt for Real podcast. I am your host, Tony Peterson. Today, I'm speaking with my buddy, Will Brantley. Uh, Listeners of this podcast have probably read something that Brantley has written at some point in his life. He's the hunting editor for Field & Stream. He's a freelancer out there in the uh, bow hunting space, the duck hunting space. He's a prolific outdoor writer, really good outdoor writer, uh, really knowledgeable on archery equipment as well, which is why I wanted to get him on. So we talk about uh, bow hunting public land. We talk about bow hunting velvet bucks down in Kentucky. We talk about all kinds of stuff, but we really get into bow choice and the differences between brands and really breaking down what somebody should look for when they're uh, in the market for a new bow. So I think this is going to be really beneficial to everybody who listens to this, who's already either a bow hunter or who's kicking around the idea of becoming a bow hunter. As always, I can't thank you enough for checking in. We love our listeners. You guys are awesome. If you haven't given us a five-star rating yet or or a killer review, please do that. We appreciate that so much. And once again, thank you for listening. In one minute, everything can change and it can become the best hunt of your life. It's a reality. Really understanding the landscape, that's what kills big deer. Will Brantley, welcome to the podcast, buddy. Yeah, Tony. Thank you for having me, man. Yeah, you and I have, uh, we've played in the same sandboxes for a long time and, you know, kind of really only recently became acquainted. Yeah, I think we actually ran into each other at an ATA show at some point and just uh, chatted it up as if we'd known each other for years. You know, I've been seeing your byline and, and definitely knew who you were and uh, I know we've uh, we've hunted with some mutual buddies, but I don't think we'd ever actually met before then, but, uh, but yeah, it's... Uh, kind of the way this business is, you know, it's a small world. It it is a small world and it's weird. You know, my wife's always, always bitching at me about, you know, like not making friends with more people and, you know, how come you're only friends with outdoor writers? And I'm like, (laughs) it's like, you know, you kind of associate with people who understand your life, you know? And so when somebody who's been doing what you've been doing for a long time and what I've been doing when we meet, we kind of, there's like a lot of understanding of day-to-day life that goes way, way back. It's like the long, the long way to answer the the other outdoor riders are the only ones weird enough to be friends with me. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, for sure. And, you know, speaking of that, uh, I was getting emails this morning from our mutual, uh, our mutual friend, Dave Herto, and he, he might be the, the weirdest, don't you think? Oh, there's no doubt. Yeah, there's no doubt. <laughs> Have you ever so. hunted with him? <laughs> I've hunted with Dave a lot. Dave yeah. and I are really good buddies. He is, uh, he is, um kind of my Yankee brother from another mother. So we, uh, he's a, he's a great hunter. Um, he's a really good Turkey hunter and, um, we always have fun, but we disagree on just, just virtually everything. Yeah. So, um, but, uh, but he, he's a, he's a hell of a good friend and, uh, and, uh, and like I said, besides a good hunter, he's a good editor. No, he, he is both of those things. And I, I asked that because, you know, I've hunted with him too. And we sit there and we just yell at each other all night long because <laughs> we disagree yeah. <laughs> on everything. It's just a constant <laughs> shouting match. And I, I like to argue and I'm not anywhere near her toes level. That guy, he wants to fight you on everything. Oh yeah. Yep. For sure. For sure. Yeah. He, uh, he likes to disagree at a principle almost. So. Oh dude. Yeah. There is not a topic that he's not going to find an angle to go, you're wrong. And here's why and open yep. it up. And no, well, you know, no. David on the, uh, you know, the FNS bow test panel together for, for years. Yep. And, um, I mean, we can start out on the first day. If there's a hint that we are both kind of liking the same bow, you know, one of us is going to find a reason to begin disagreeing with the other one about something like, yeah, it's, it's okay. But like, I think this one's back walls a little bit better. And so it's, uh, it's always a lot of fun. I mean, I, you know, that's, uh, that's a week of, uh, of exhaustive arguing by the time we're done with that test. So. Yeah. And you, you guys are running a pretty comprehensive test there, aren't you? We, we do. Yeah. We, um, you know, it's one of those things. It's, uh, it's a labor of love. We, we just finished it this year. Um, actually I just, uh, just turned in the crossbow version of it yesterday and yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a lot of hard work. It's, um, you know, just the logistics of gathering up all that equipment and we do, you know, for the vertical bow test, we do, uh, you know, two of each bow that we test, we do an IBO spec bow for all the objective stuff. And then we get another one set to 2860 for all the range testing and, 
we take them up to stress engineering and, um, you know, and measuring groups and averaging things out and, you know, scoring all these different categories. We, we do our best to keep it fair, you know, and objective. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's a pretty good test and it's it's fun, but I, I'm always relieved when it's over, too, because it, it is a lot of work. So. Yeah. Do you um, I mean, you don't have to get into too many specifics, but I know from from having set up a pile of bows in my life and, you know, written about even more and seeing all the marketing speak and you know all the claims out there are you are do you feel like that the the bow companies are like being a little bit more honest these days and falling in line a little better because i know for a while we went through some stuff where it was like those claims are insane for arrow speeds i mean some of the abbo claims you know um even from just a few years ago were were just crazy and um you know you uh you check a few of those things and publish them in a national magazine and all of a sudden uh you know, things get a little (laughs) a little tighter and um i'm not saying there aren't still a few that uh you know, spice things up a little bit, but, um, I, I think for the most part, they tend to, they, they, they tend to be pretty close to what's advertised. Um, you know, and I think the other thing too, um, it, it's so crazy. I mean, there's such a standard with compound bows, right. Of, uh, you know, of, of the speeds and then with crossbows, there is no standard. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of anything goes. Um, and just almost as a rule, I mean, your advertised crossbow speeds are exactly what they are, you know, when you start chronographing them. And as we've always done this vertical bow test, we've been doing the crossbow test right alongside it. And, uh, it's been kind of interesting to see that, like, you know, we publish the crossbow speeds. They're always as advertised. And then the vertical bow speeds, you know, kind of historically weren't. And then now they're kind of getting a little bit more in line. And I, you know, I don't know if it's been a byproduct of, of that or not, but, um, but yeah, definitely they're, um, I seem to be a little more honest than they used to be. So. Do, you, do you think that's partially because we, we kind of went through the speed phase and, you know, I mean, when that, when PSC dropped the X-Force and everybody started turning their eyes to the chronograph, we went through a wild phase in the archery industry. And now it feels like, you know, the, the top end advertised speeds, you know, you see some of those bows creeping into like the 350s, but most of them, you're probably looking at 325 to 340 as advertised. And it sort of feels mm-hmm. like everybody's at the same place. And so there isn't as big of a push for, you know, we, we need, we need to be, you know, bumped way up there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, uh, you know, this year, um, in particular, it seemed like a lot of the bows, uh, were a little bit slower across the board. Actually, we had a lot, a lot of our top end bows. I mean, like I think our fastest bow this year, and again, this was set to IBO specs with IBO arrow, you know, the only thing that we don't do, like when we're chronographing, we, we do use a, a whisker biscuit just for simplicity's sake. We're not shooting them right off the shelf and we do have a D loop. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, you can expect a little loss of speed. We always kind of assume like five feet a second, maybe. Um, but even so, like um, the fastest bow this year was only like 330. Um, you know, several of the companies kind of went the route of, um, you know, having some of these extra tuning features and things like that built into them. And, uh, you know, in, in some cases it, it, uh, you know, accommodating some of those things cost them a little performance. But even so, you know, I mean, you, you get a bow that shooting 300 feet a second, it's it's plenty fast enough. So. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of what I look at it is, you know, if you've if you've set up for elk hunting or whitetail hunting and you shot your bow through a chronograph, you've seen pretty consistent speeds for probably the last 10 years. Yeah. And they're plenty fast enough. They just aren't, yeah. they, you know, they aren't as glittery maybe as you'd see in an advertisement, but they're still, right. you know, right. they, they're still blowing through elk and moose like it's. Absolutely. Yeah. So absolutely. it's, 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 it's interesting to see. And, you know, you mentioned that about like some of the tuning features and it seems like, you know, you see companies like Bowtech do, does this a lot. And some other companies are doing this now where they're building in features to make it easier to modify your bow you know matthews did it as well and i wonder if that's a response i because i don't feel like the average bow hunter is really asking for that but maybe i'm wrong but i wonder if it's a response to just us losing mom and pop bow shops and just the necessity of like man if you want to work on a bow and have it tuned you might want to just do it yourself as much as you can that's right. Yeah, I mean, I think that could be a part of it. Um, you know, it's it's interesting that you should mention this. I mean, I um, actually interviewed one of the guys at Stress Engineering about this um, this year. You know, it was kind of a kind of a sidebar component of our bow test. And um, you know, I mean, the reality is uh, a lot of your bows are hitting 
you know, we had we had one last year um, that was, I think its efficiency rating was like 86%. And I mean, so long as you have a human being pulling the string, that's just about the best that you can get, you know. And he said that, uh, you know, he made the point, he said, you know, companies, when, when compound bows have reached that level of efficiency, they're paying a lot of money for that to eke out that extra one or two percent. And honestly, that's something that I'm never going to notice. You're never going to notice. And most of your bow hunters are never going to notice. And so, you know, at the same time, the bow companies are still in business. And, you know, I think kind of in some ways still hanging on to the good old days of when guys bought a new bow every fall, you know, and, and expected a new bow every fall. And so they, they, the market does kind of demand that they put out a new product. and because we know that, that you can't just keep making them faster. Um, you can't just keep making them more efficient. You can't keep making, you know, there, there are a lot of things that, uh, you know, frankly, all the bow companies are doing pretty well to yep. this point. And so I think some of these tuning features, yeah, they, they may be a response to the closing of some pro shops. I know they've certainly, you know, a lot of them have closed around here, but I also think too, it's, um, it, it's another selling point. It's a matter of, of trying something, you know, new and different and, you know, just, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, and, and they're good features. I mean, you know, we tried them this year and, and I'm like you, like, uh, you know, like the Botech had one, uh, the new elite had one, um, you know, the, the Matthews and the prime had some changes to the cams, you know, that allowed more adjustability, but they weren't really like tuning features like the Botech yeah. or the elite. Um, but even so, like, you know, they, they worked, um, I wouldn't say they were difficult to use, but I'm, I'm also kind of like you. Like, I don't know that that's something that your average bow hunter is is asking for or, or is even really going to do. I mean, most of your guys, you know, they, they can adjust the poundage on their limbs and move their sight, maybe move their rest to paper tune it. And that's about all the average guy is comfortable with. I mean, you know, I can do... A, a little bit of stuff on my bow. I can tinker with it, you know, probably just enough to be dangerous, but like for serious work that I need to press it or something, I mean, I, I like to take it to a pro shop. So, um, when you start messing with cam lean and stuff like that, like that's, that's some pretty advanced stuff. So, um, you know, again, like it, it works and it's pretty cool, but I, you know, I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm kind of, I'm kind of on the fence. It's like, you know, do, does the average bow hunter need that or not? And, and maybe they do. So, yeah, I don't know, man. I I kind of default and think, you know, we're still killing deer at twenty yards, <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> most of us, you know. And it, when I talk to, you know, I, I would consider like my my kind of group of buddies is maybe you know more into it than like the average weekend warrior. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll go on a couple trips, and you know, they have access to me, and they're they're consumers of information. And if you ask those guys to set up their own bow you know, no way. Like there, there's no way they're going to do it. And even, you know, I have a press in my, I have everything in my office. Like if I said, here you go, guys, there would be no, there's no bows getting set up. There might be some limbs getting cracked and some eyeballs getting popped out when things explode. (laughs) But yeah, so I'm, you know, I I realize, yeah, part of it is they need, these bow companies need something to advertise and talk about. And I'm sure sure there is a percentage of consumers who are, they're going through the manual and going, this makes sense to me. Like I know how to adjust this and the easier they make it, you know, if it's just a twist of an Allen wrench or something and you can, you can move things back and forth and get some center shot in line or something like that. It's, it's probably a good thing. I just, I'm kind of cynical about it and look at it and go, man, the the 20 yard whitetail crowd, are they getting this? And I, I guess I just really don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know the answer. And like I say, I mean, the, the tuning systems that we messed with this year, I mean, they were as simple as that. I mean, you, you know, you, you loosen a hex bolt and, and make your adjustments and tighten the hex bolt back. And, um, you know, they, they did work. I mean, we were able to, you know, able to, able to like with the Bowtech and the elite both, we were able to paper tune them pretty quickly, having never used those systems, you know, just took them right out of the box. And, um, you know, no, those bows were pretty close out of the box too. Um, and, you know, and so like the way that, you know, when Danny Hinton and I were doing the test, like the way that we messed with them, you know, we, paper tune them out of the box traditionally with a, you know, with a rest. And then we purposely tried to get them out of whack, so to speak, you know, with mm-hmm. the new tuning systems and then bring them back in. And, and it, and it was, it was, it was pretty easy to do and, and you could really fine tune things. And, and, and you did start to see some, some subtle shooting differences between individual shooters, you know, something might need to be adjusted slightly differently, you know, for Danny than it did for me. But, you know, even so, like, like you say, I don't know, 
it was cool, you know, and it, and it, and it was, uh, and it did work and it was something neat to write about again. Like I just, uh, I guess I'm like you, I, I when I say, I don't know, I, I legitimately don't know. Like if, if most of bow hunting America is asking for that, maybe they are. So, yeah. Well, I mean, I think the lesson there maybe is all of this adjustability is, is awesome in the right hands. And if yeah. you're, if you're buying a bow or you want to be like, you want to, you want to be able to shoot really, really well. You have to start with a bow mm-hmm. that is set up for you, like yeah. specifically for you. And like when you're talking about, you know, handing a bow off to her toe or whoever's shooting it and having to make changes during a, uh, you know, a bow test when every, you're, you know, you're working on objectivity, like it's, it's a good lesson for the average guy out there gets his hand mm-hmm. on a bow. So, you know, this is why the, the hand-me-down bow thing is so dangerous, you know, like, yeah, just, sure. just. Just because it's a free boat doesn't mean it's a very good one for you. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't mean it's going to do you a lot of good, you know, at the end of the day. And I mean, you know, like another way to look at it, I mean, yeah, it is kind of complex, but like compared to the world of, say, you know, like extreme precision long-range rifle shooting, which is a is a foreign thing to me. I mean, I've dabbled with some of it just a very little bit, just, you know, as kind of a byproduct of work, but like that is really complex to me, you know, much more so than, than any of these tuning systems. And so, I mean, I, I guess it's just all relative, you know, and there are plenty of guys who figured that out. So, yeah. well, yeah, I mean, it's all, if you're, I, maybe I don't want to speak for you, but I, I am a word guy and not a numbers guy. And when you get yeah. in, like, I, I have no interest in the long range rifle thing anyway, that, that does nothing for me personally. But when I look yep. at what they have to do, it's also one of those tasks that I just like. I, I mean, you know, you, you've got your little boy at home. We've been we've been homeschooling our girls since you know school got shut down, and I'm trying to do second grade math, and they have problems where I'm like, I just hand it off to my wife. I'm like, I can't even. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 yeah. So uh, there's just something about you know the way certain brains are wired. So like you say, some are word brains and some are number brains, and and mine is definitely uh, a word brain. It, um, you know, the number stuff. I just I, I quickly kind of kind of glaze over. So yeah, I can't I can't do it. I I don't. I th- I think you're one or the other, and it's probably a very <laughs> rare individual who gets both. Because yeah. I don't, at least from how I view it, there's no. <laughs> it's pretty. <laughs> it's a pretty clear delineation between the two. So you started. Uh, you started a little bit of outfitting last year down there in Kentucky. Are you Are you doing that again this year? We are. Yeah, yeah. If we can book the guys, um, we uh, we had. You know, it's one of those things where we. We're kind of doing a soft sell on it. We're only booking four hunters a year, and it's uh, we're we're exclusively an archery camp. Um, and really, we kind of specialize in the in the September season. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people want to come to Kentucky and try to kill a velvet whitetail. And yeah, I mean, it's it's a good chance to kill a velvet deer. Um, but I mean, the velvet part of it aside, like it's it's the best time of year to kill a big deer. Um, you know, most of the, of the good deer that I've killed with a bow in Kentucky have, uh, you know, have been in September and my wife, Michelle, she's actually killed two. I've actually never killed one here, uh, in velvet. I've killed a lot of nice September bucks, but never one in velvet. I've killed them with blood on their antlers and things like that. And, uh, Michelle's killed a couple in velvet. And so, I don't know, it's one of those things that we've been doing that a long time. I mean, she and I have, um, and, um. I don't know. We we we've just kind of gotten dialed into it, dialed into some really good places, and then we've uh, we we built a little lodge at our farm here in, in Callaway County, and um, you know it's uh, it's nothing real fancy. It's not huge, but it's it's pretty nice. And um, you know, yeah, we we've got a you know got openings for uh, for four people in the fall, and like I say, we we advertised it a little bit back in the you know back in the winter time and had a lot of interest and a lot of tire kicking and then obviously all of this came up and so who knows what things are going to be like this fall but you know I think um, I think as we get into the summer and people start thinking about deer a little bit more in early season stuff you know we'll probably get some interest in that again yeah so. is there was this sort of a response to Kentucky just really really got on the radar with the early season stuff and the the ability to bait and it just seemed like you know, you didn't see Kentucky anywhere. It didn't really show up in the conversation. Then all of a sudden it showed up freaking everywhere and everybody wanted yeah. to go. Yeah. 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 I think so. Um, you know, it, it is, um, you know, I mean, the September season has been here since, I, I mean, I think the first year I started bow hunting, I was, um, 
think I was 14, 37 now. So again, we're talking about that numbers thing, however long ago that's been. And it opened October 1st that year. And then after that, it opened like September 20th. And then pretty quickly after that, they backed it up to the first Saturday in September. And it's been like that ever since. Uh, and I can remember as a kid, like my dad was a big bow hunter and he, he was the one who got me into it. And I can, I can remember him kind of bitching about the September season. He's like, you know, gosh, it's too hot to be out there and too many bugs. I don't care to go. And, um, you know, as a gung ho teenager, I just wanted to be out there. And I, I, I wasn't really going in those early days because I thought it was any better. It was just because bow season was open and I was going to go. Yep. And I, gosh, I can remember going out one evening on a neighbor's hay field right before the season came in. I didn't even I didn't know what a bachelor group of bucks was, but I remember like these 10 big deer walked out in this field and I watched them. I was like, man, that, that's pretty cool. Like, I didn't even know bucks got in a big group like that, you know. And so, you know, I, like I say, before any of the press on September bow hunting and velvet hunting and bachelor groups and all that, um, like before that was a thing, like I was learning firsthand, like, you know, those deer. They, they came out there last night, and so I went to scout the next night, and damn, they did it again, you know. And then opening evening of the season, I got a shot at one of them. I messed it up, but um, <laughs> but yeah, it started it started clicking for me. And then um, you know, when Michelle and I started dating, and she took up bow hunting, we you know we got permission on some farms around here. We started hunting soybean fields, and uh, you know, seeing a lot of deer, and um, you know, killing some pretty good deer. And uh, you know, it really wasn't until I don't know, five or six years ago, really, that we even tried baiting. Um, I, nobody baited for deer when I was growing up. I, you know, I guess maybe some did. I, I think it's been legal here in Kentucky for as long as I can remember. But, you know, obviously you put a corn pile out there around the September deer and they're going to come to it. So it's, um, you know, I think its effectiveness gets a little bit overhyped, especially later on through the season. We've got farms that we hunt that we we never put any bait on them and still do pretty well. But, um, you know, in the, in the right circumstances, it can really work. And so, I don't know, we've kind of figured out all those, you know, or, or some of those ingredients to that puzzle and, uh, you know, put together a program that I, I think is pretty good. We had three hunters last year. Um, I wish we had a, had a pile of big deer pictures, but, you know, of our three hunters, we had two got a shot and we, we you know, we had one deer that was hit and we, we didn't recover, unfortunately, and another that was missed. And, third guy saw a lot of deer and so you know it was our first year outfitting we were learning but um you know we were we were pleased with those results too so it was a pretty high shot opportunity and um you know i think uh i think this fall hopefully with any luck it'll it'll be better so yeah i mean that 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 early september opener i mean you if you're east of the mississippi that's kentucky's about it i mean if you want to kill a a velvet whitetail you know out west you got you got several places, you know, several states where you can kill them. But if you if you're anywhere, you know, heading east, that's that's about it. And I, you know, I've I've spent some. I've never hunted Kentucky. I spent some time down there fishing uh, Barkley um, and Kentucky Lake for some some mm-hmm. bass down there and looking at the land between the lakes and going, man, there's Kentucky has some pretty cool public land opportunities down there. But we do, we do, yeah. I mean, I um, of course I live. 20 minutes from land between the lakes. I hunt there. It's where I do most of my turkey hunting when the sea, they have an abbreviated season, you know, their, um, their regulations are a little bit different and, and actually hunt mostly on the, on the Tennessee side. Um, but anyway, it's the same, same type habitat. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we do, um, we do have some pretty good public land opportunities. I mean, it's, um, I would say like for the early season, whitetail hunting in particular, like some of the public land is, is pretty tough because a lot of it tends to be big woods. And like, yep. if there is a time of the year that, um, you know, that, that big woods are tough, it, it's definitely September, you know, it's, um, you know, it's hard to pinpoint on one food source when, you know, when you're in the big timber. And I mean, that's really before any of the mast is falling, you can't bait on public land or anything like that. And so like that is tough, but nonetheless, there are some good deer out there in September. And, uh, you know, if you, uh, put on your big boy boots and go looking you can find them so well yeah i mean get on a water source or get on something but yeah those there's a lot of states out there some of my favorite states to hunt public land are the ones that allow baiting on private but not on public 
Cause yeah. man, you see, you know, it's just so, it's so common for the residents to lean so heavily on the baiting that it seems like they don't really want to hunt the public if they can't do it. Mm-hmm. And man, in Oklahoma and a couple other States, I've had really good luck hunting deer staging on public land or betting on public land that were, you know, I'm sure they ended up on feeders at some point in the night, sure. but they, sure. they're not, you know, they, they're, they're patternable and they're killable on the public land where the bedding cover is. And it's a, yeah. a, a lot of people don't really want to dive into that. And I think it's mm-hmm. just a freaking phenomenal opportunity. It, it is. Yeah. And I mean, it's, um, you know, like I said, people do, uh, I, I think, I think baiting combined with, with, you know, popularization of trail cameras has, has kind of created this. I mean, people get addicted to seeing that deer on trail camera and man, they, you know, they go, they check their camera that's over the bait set. And I mean, you know, around here, you're, you're not going to (laughs) go pretty much every hundred acres, you know, in September has got a bait pile and a trail camera sitting on it, you know, somewhere. And it's pretty easy to get those big deer on camera and you might get them on camera in broad daylight. Man, like, it's just, you know, it is, it's this, 100%, 100%, you know, I'm going to get a shot and you get there and you don't see a deer and people wonder what happened. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, having watched a lot of good deer come into, uh, come into a bait pile, um, what those cameras don't show is the 45 minutes that that deer spends circling half moon, you know, walks around that bait set. And like when you're sitting in a tree stand, 15 yards from that bait and you've got a mature deer that's circling it for 40 feet, you are going to get busted. busted. Yeah. He is going to figure you out most of the time. Um, and I mean, not that all of them do that, but a good many of them do. And I mean, you combine that with how thick it is here in September and how hot and miserable and you're swatting bugs. Like, um, yeah, it's, it's as the odds go for killing a mature buck with a bow, it's pretty high, but still it's not the, it's not the give me sometimes that those trail cameras would make you believe. And so I can see definitely like if you can figure out where that deer sleeps, uh, and if it is on nearby public land, um, you know, you, you've kind of got an element of surprise on, it. Uh, you know, it is a, pretty cool opportunity so well yeah and i think you know i, th- I think we've been just generally uh kind of, it, it's easy to believe that baiting is the answer you know you see the texas videos and stuff and yeah i mean you take a place that doesn't have a ton of natural browse or natural food mm-hmm. and you broadcast a cup of corn out there and there's five thousand animals competing for it different ball game when you get into a place with lots of masts and lots of egg and yeah. you know like you said if there's people baiting everywhere you know i see this in where i hunt in wisconsin i don't i, I feel like i might be the only person in the county trying to kill one on natural movement and i mm-hmm. really think you know it's like especially as it gets close to rifle season i don't know you know i mean it, it would it would be neat to know how many tons of corn suddenly right. end up in the woods and now these deer right. are like why they don't need to work to, they they don't need to move in daylight to fill their bellies and so it's like a it, you know, I always kind of look at it. I'm like, if you put a good hunter and they go, I'm in a bait, they're probably going to kill one. And if you yeah. put, you know, somebody who's not really that committed to it in any kind of strategy like that, it's just, okay, what are the, what are the average success rates? Cause that's where that guy's going to land. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know I mean? I do, I, I'm kind of, uh, I guess like if we were going to get into the, the, the philosophy of baiting, I mean, I, you know, I'm in Kentucky. I, I, I do bait. Um, probably spend more money on, on corn than, uh, than I should. Um, but like I say, it's not, I didn't grow up hunting doing that. And, 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 uh, you know, we really didn't start doing that until a few years ago and always killed plenty of deer growing up. Um, I, you know, I don't know, like it's, uh, on the one hand, like, um, a lot of people don't have, uh, you know, most people don't have access to the ground that I have access to. Most people don't have the acreages or the time to hunt that I do. Uh, and, and I mean, like the reality of deer season for a lot of people is, you know, the, the 20 acre farm behind the house. Yeah. Um, and without that corn pile, uh, on the two weekends or whatever a year that they have to hunt, like their chances of killing a deer are not that great, you know, and that corn pile might be the difference in a deer walking by and giving them a good shot or not. And so like, it's for me, like it's hard to, it's hard to argue with that. But like at the same time, 
you know, that's kind of like the idealistic, you know, description of it, too. Like, I, I do think a lot of people do kind of lean on it as a crutch. And I honestly think that if it went away, um, like, overall, uh, I, I don't think you would see success rates decline just a whole lot. You know, I think yeah. people would find that they could still pattern early season deer. Um, they could still pattern late season deer. Um, they could still go out and shoot does when they wanted to put a deer in the freezer. Like, I, I think all those things would still happen. Um, but, uh, you know, the, yeah, I don't know, the baiting issue, especially in a state like Kentucky or Wisconsin, it's, it's kind of, it's a, it's a complex issue for sure. Yeah. Well, I just, I kind of think, you know, I mean, I, I'm like you, I get hit up all the time. Like, how should I hunt this or what should I do here? And, you know, my default answer for most people is figure out where deer like to walk and go sit there. Like mm -hmm. it just doesn't, it, that's just what it is, you know, and I had a, had a fellow reach out to me through Instagram the other day, who's a hog hunter down in Florida. And he got permission to hunt, uh, uh some acquaintances land, a buddy's land or something in Kentucky. And he's like, what should I do? You know, I'm, I'm going to go, I don't have a lot of time to do food plots and cut trails and stuff. So I'm going to go put up a feeder or two and some cameras. And he's like, what, then what should I do? And I was like, well, if that's what you're going to do, that's where the deer are going to go. <laughs> you know, yeah. like we've, <laughs> the conversation's over. And I was like, but it, you know, and he was kind of like, I, I want to learn how to deer hunt. And I was like, well, if you put up those feeders, you're, you're probably not going to spend a lot of time trying to figure out the natural movement. You got, you kind of got to make that decision. Do you want to kill yep. deer? this way or do you want to learn how they use the property and it's you know it I, I don't care what he does i hope he goes and has a good time but they're yeah. they're kind of diametrically opposed like you either put something yeah. up that brings deer right to you or you figure out how to go to the deer but they don't play well together sure sure well and you start trying to do both you know of uh you know it's it, it like a, a, a bait pile is, is in a way, you know, kind of a disruption um, mm -hmm. to your to your normal movement. And then you start trying to figure out how to kill the deer that's coming to the bait. And, and you can really start second guessing things. And like, you know, I, I think um, I, I think like a, a lot of the guys who, you know, who, who both run bait and and also consistently kill good deer kind of think of it as like, you know, it's a. <laughs> the the strategy for it changes you know depending on the phase of the season right like early season they're they're looking to shoot that deer right over the bait uh late season's kind of the same way um the rest of the year uh they're, they're kind of looking at that bait as something that sort of congregates family groups of does yeah. and you know and they they may never sit where they can see it and i mean obviously the right time of year that's where the bucks are going to be too and um you know, I, I do think uh, if ever there was like a season long baiting strategy that, that, you know, personally I've seen work like that's that's definitely it. You know, yeah. um, Michelle and I shoot a lot of does, but we try not to shoot, you know, really any after October 1st all the way up till late December, you know, because we just kind of like those family groups to hang around and get established and do their thing. And, you know, a, a big pile of corn sort of sort of encourages them to do that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the same thing as, you know, most, I shouldn't say most, an awful lot of people treat their food plots the same way. It's just a, this is, it's a wonderful way to get the doe family groups to stick around and stay in the area. And, you know, I, I see this even on, you know, I own a couple of little properties over in Wisconsin and one of them I have, it's a small food food plot, but I put a lot of work into it. And now because of the limited availability of good food up there, cause it's big wood stuff, mm -hmm. we'll get, you know, I'll get like one doe family group, maybe one random loner doe or something. It's, you know, it's low deer density, but it keeps does around better than, you know, anything I could do, you know, I don't live there. And so it's, yeah. it's two hours and 20 minutes away from my house. And so that little clover plot it functions the same way. And I know, you know, I have a hard time not going in there and shooting them, especially if like one of my daughters wants to sit with me. <laughs> Cause mm -hmm. you know, I know I can go <laughs> sit in a blind and that's probably going to be the best chance for them to see a deer come yep. in, but it's, you know, it functions the same way. And it's, you know, it's still, it's, it's the same kind of thing like you were talking about where even having it out there or having the bait pile out there, you, it, to do things correctly, that's just not the sole answer for you. Like just having that food there is just not, a, you still have to be thinking about, and you, you really have to think about how are the deer reacting to it? Like you talked about, you know, the, the, those bucks that come in downwind and they circle, there's old does that do that too. And they, you know, they spent their whole lives encountering danger around 
corn piles in specific places. Like yeah. they, they learn that. And so you can't just divorce the process and go, okay, well I sit over corn deer come in. It's not so simple. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's a, uh, I don't know. We, we end up getting, we go off on <laughs> lots of baiting tangents on this podcast. Uh, oh, let's, that's all. So <laughs> yeah, let's, let's talk about something else. You, uh, you doing any bow fishing down there lately? We went um, actually this weekend, and we've had a big cold front come through, and it's kind of kind of messed things up. And of course, we're in the middle of turkey season, and I, you know, if there's, I get obsessive really about all hunting seasons, but turkeys especially. So I, I get just positively nutty about turkeys, and uh, um, drives uh, drives Michelle nuts sometimes. She loves to turkey hunt, but uh, she doesn't get she doesn't get into it like I do. And actually, my my little boy, he. Uh, it was funny back in uh, back in early April. We were driving down the road, and I stopped to look at a turkey out in the field. And I, I don't know what I said, but he goes, "Coronavirus and turkeys. That's all you want to talk about, Daddy." So it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but but yeah, that's a that's a long way of uh, of answering the bow fishing question. We have been out a couple of times. Um, we went out uh, in the early spring, um, well, you know, it was kind of, kind of late March when the water first started warming up around here, uh, when the Buffalo were running a little bit, um, and, and shot a few of them. Um, Michelle loves to bow fish and, uh, and I, I really like it too. Now I, I have bow fished. I have shot, I, if I never have to shoot another fish, like it's okay. I really like it. I do. Um, but I, I honestly, um, I, I like to go really and drive the boat and spot fish for Michelle to shoot. Like that's yep. kind of become our thing. Um, I just, you know, I really like to do it because again, like I've shot so many fish and filmed bow fishing and, and, you know, and, and done so many stories about it. And it's just one of those things like I've just done a lot of it. Um, but Michelle loves to shoot. And we, we actually get, um, we get a, a, big run of just giant long nose gar about this time of year um first part of may and we went out the other afternoon um it actually started out as a as a bluegill fishing trip and wasn't doing real well and i said let's go let's go check some of these rock banks and see if those gar are up we had michelle's bow in the boat and um oh there were just some giants up there just absolute monsters and um she shot one uh I don't know how big it was. It was, it was heavy. Um, you know, it was 30 pounds plus And, uh, you know, of course in a long nose gar, I mean, that's a really that's heavy, a long fish, you know, nearly as long as I am tall. And, uh, we actually put that thing in the freezer. We're going to have it taxidermied. So we, I've seen a few, a uh, few gar mounts that look pretty <laughs> cool. We're going to put it up in our deer lodge, but, um, Michelle shot that one and a few others. And, um, you know, we didn't, we could have killed a bunch of them, but we didn't want to just, you know, just load the boat with them. But, um, but it was fun. And then, um, like the, uh, you know, the, the Asian carp, uh, I'm, I'm sure they're running below the dams right now. And we, you know, we always get into those, um, later on in the summer, you know, kind of have turkey season settling down. And really as much as turkey season settling down, it's kind of a, a matter of the, you know, the water levels sort of stabilizing for the summer, you know, those, those dams can get pretty, uh, pretty turbulent and pretty, you know, pretty dangerous really. Um, when the, when the water flows are too high, but once it starts stabilizing, uh, getting hot, clearing off, I mean, you'll have schools of those carp come up and I, who knows how many you can kill in a day. Um, and, and honestly, like that opportunity is probably as much as anything, what I, I wouldn't say like burn me out on boat fishing. Cause again, I still love it, but you know, I've, I've been down there so many times and had so many, hundred fish days, you know, where you could have yeah. just kept shooting them and you just like, I don't know how many more of these I need to kill, you know, yeah. to, to say I've had a good day, you know, I've pulled fish in until I'm tired of it. And my, it's going to take me three days to get the boat clean and all that good stuff, you know? So that's, that's, I am, I, I you know, we don't have days like that up here. We, we don't have the Asian carp yet. Um, but I'm kind of in the same phase of bow fishing as you, you know, I, I did it so much for so long and it, it is a blast but I'm to the point now where I would rather just spot them and let somebody else fling at them. Yeah. And I don't, part of it is, I just don't want to 
take care of them. You know, that's what I always ran into is, you know, you come home with a bucket full of carp or, you know, mixed bag down on the Mississippi. You're like, now what are you going to do with them? You know, and I just got sick of that. You know, if you're planting apple trees or something, they can, (laughs) they're pretty awesome for putting those (laughs) in the hole and then planting a tree over them. But, you know, a guy only plants so many of those in his life and, so yeah, I, I kind of, right. I got the same way and I'm like, you know, I, I only have a bass boat. And so when you go bow fishing for a couple oh, of days man. in that, it's just freaking brutal. Just yeah, disgusting. Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine cleaning that stuff out of a car. I mean, I've got a, you know, I've got a, a, a war eagle, you know, John boat. And I mean, we've got a tread plate floor. I mean, it's a rhino line. Like it's, it's, it's made for messy stuff, you know? And, mm. and I mean, you can spray it right out, but even getting, carp funk out of that especially on one of those days where it's 98 degrees and it's baked into the paint i mean it's just uh yeah. it, it's it's tough like it's a job cleaning that stuff so i couldn't imagine washing it out of a bass boat so. it's terrible and it, you know you know how it is when you're when you're the guy who has the the boat you know you're the one who's clean like nobody's sticking <laughs> around to clean it you know like <laughs> nobody's sticking around yeah. to help you build you know bury the carp or whatever and so yeah that's kind of i'm kind of in the same same spot as you and you know my little girls aren't they can't pull enough to to bow fish yet no we we have a place on a lake up north and we're starting to see certain times a year you'll see big buff move up shallow there isn't a lot for carp and suckers in there it's pretty cold but the buff are in there and you know if they get to a point where they can they can pull a boat you know recurve back enough where they could get a you know get a point into them we'll we'll be doing that for sure but yeah for sure it's a great thing to take a kid to do i mean i've taken a lot of kids out you know shooting and stuff and um you know it's um i mean it's just a it's you know it's virtually a hundred percent success rate for everybody who ever tries it you know even their very first time and um you know a lot of action and uh you know, you're in the boat and it's warm and, and, uh, so, I mean, it's, it's definitely, you know, definitely a lot to it. And I mean, like I said, my little boy, he, he loves it. You know I mean? He wanted to shoot he wanted us, he, he's the same boat. He can't, he can't pull a bow yet, but I mean, he wanted us to shoot every single gar we saw, you know, and couldn't understand why we were just letting them swim and watch them. I'm like, just have fun looking at him, but we're, we're going to shoot yeah. some big ones. But, um, you know, I'm definitely looking forward to, to the days when he can pull a bow because I'm, I'm suspect that he'll be into it so. yeah i'm i think that your son might be into bow fishing i i'm gonna go out <laughs> on a limb and say that's probably a possibility and you know it's it's a neat it's sort of a neat bridge you know because people are generally pretty okay with fishing you know you don't see yeah. a lot of people you know you got to be like a pretty big wing nut to be like oh fishing is fishing is super bad and it's like that next step where you're like hunting fish and, you know, nobody's too like emotionally attached to a carp or a gar or anything, <laughs> you know, like if you, you, if you stick an arrow through one and you whomp it on the side of the boat with your persuader stick, whatever you carry, yeah. Yeah, it's not like, it's, it's like the turkey thing, you know, like just, just they're, they're good. They're a good place to start because people are just <laughs> not, they're not a whole lot of Disney going on there. Yeah. Yeah. About long nose gar. So yeah. no long gar princesses so. no those gar you know we don't we don't get big gar up here you know we're our our growing season's so short but they're just such a like they're they're just one of those things you get your hands on them and you're like this is so prehistoric like it just mm-hmm. gives off that vibe like these suckers have been around a long time and they're just pure muscle and they're they're scales yeah. well, they're fish well i mean you know, from the one that we shot the other day, I don't know if you can see, I've got a little spot healing on my thumb and it wasn't even from his tooth. It was just where I was trying to get an arrow out. of. I mean, I mean, it was a big, heavy fish and I had on a glove with one hand holding his jaw shut and his gill just scraped against my thumb. I mean, just cut it damn near to the bone mm-hmm. just from his gill plate, you know, just like everything on him, you know, can cause damage. And it's, uh, you know, I, I really like them. I mean, I, I think they're, uh, you know, they're a, they're a great fish and, um, you know, they're, they're cool. You know, they're yeah. neat looking. I wouldn't, I don't necessarily know that they're pretty, but they're definitely appealing in their own way. And, uh, you know, they're just a, I don't know, they're just an interesting fish. They're not bad to eat. Um, I don't, I don't know if you've ever eaten one, you know, you kind of got to clean them with tin snips, but they're, um, actually like you kind of clean them like a, like the back straps of a deer, you know, they just kind of fillet right off of the, right off the top of that rib cage and sort of a, chewy kind of a i don't know kind of a shrimp texture sort of meat but it's real white real clean you know so they're they're neat yeah they're they're cool critter i I can't eat fish i'm allergic to fish so i don't oh wow (laughs) yeah they'll be i i I always joke about this but you know growing up where i live it was all walleyes and crappies you know that's what everybody wants to fish up here and 
you know, so, and it, being the young boy in my family, I was the guy who had to clean all the fish. And mm-hmm. I, I still firmly think that outside of like, uh, dock boys at resorts and stuff like i might hold the record for most fish cleaned and not eaten because i can't can't eat them and finally yeah. finally one day i was like i'm freaking done with this i'm the only one break like i break out cleaning them if i clean too many and stuff i'm like why am yeah. i doing it? i'm like i'm the only one at risk of dying here the only one who doesn't get to eat them and i gotta clean all these goddamn things and so yeah. i'm i gave that up i do i do have some buddies i keep fish for now that i i clean but no i don't i don't get to eat them but i do one of my buddies ate gar one time and told me it wasn't uh wasn't terrible but i've you know you hear about that and i one thing i like about you know you talk about like how they look and you know they're kind of they they're they are kind of like beautiful in their own way but one thing i love about them is and just fish in general is you know you spend your time freshwater fishing and you catch northerns or you catch gar or whatever and then you go to the ocean or you watch these shows where somebody's down catching arapaima somewhere in the in the jungle and you look at the designs of these things and it's like man you know you you put up a barracuda next to a northern pike or a muskie and you're like they're just like man they're cousins you know and then you look at the 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 armor on like an arapaima down there and the way they gulp air and then you look at a gar and it's just it's cool you know 5,000 miles apart, how they evolved to be damn near the same thing. Right. I, th- I think that stuff's just fascinating. What else should we talk about, buddy? What are you, what are you looking forward to this year? Are you, are you shooting a bow yet? Are you, are you one of those guys who has to shoot? No, I don't. Um, you know, of course I was, uh, I, I was neck deep in, in it during our bow test. And then I, um, I followed that up with a broadhead test, uh, which I'm still, crunching the results so i did a you know i did a lot of uh you know a lot of shooting even after the after the bow test just to finish up that broadhead test and um so you know there's some years that i really get into bow hunting turkeys i was really into it a few years ago and i and i still love it um i honestly our turkey numbers are down so low um that i you know i uh I like to eat turkey breasts so much that you know that I, I hadn't I hadn't picked up my bow this year. Um, but um, so I, I'm I'm in kind of a kind of a little lull of shooting. I, I used to shoot a lot of 3D, and I I don't do as much of that anymore just because of the time. But I, I don't know. I, I start shooting seriously, you know, in in the name of prepping for deer season, usually around the end of June. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll pick my bow up and and uh, you know and start shooting in the evenings a lot, and um, you know, and I. Uh, you know, I don't shoot as often as I, as I used to. I mean, I, I would say probably, well, the biggest portion of my deer season prep is, is definitely in the, you know, in the habitat management side of things, you know, just, um, food plot work and, you know, stand maintenance and all that, especially since we, you know, we, we've started the outfitting stuff. I, you know, yep. I like to try to be sure everything, you know, on, on that front is dialed in, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, Right around the corner. Either way, it'll it will be time to pick up a bow. So yeah, I, I I'm just curious because I'm I sort of operate the same way now. I mean, I, I tore a muscle in my shoulder in 2015 and right before the season, and so it it changed my whole perspective on uh, shooting a lot and you know like mm-hmm. the, the integrity of my shoulders and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I kind of. You know, I don't do, I try to do like one Western hunt a year for something, but it's not like I'm going out and doing a ton of spot and stock antelope mm-hmm. or mule deer where yeah. I feel like, man, I got to be, you know, I got to be on my A game. This probably sounds right. bad, but I feel like, you know, when you hunt whitetails a lot and you've, you've been there and done that enough, I just don't feel like it requires as much preseason shooting as it used to. Yeah. I mean, the, the um, you know, the long range shooting in particular, um, you know, I don't, uh, I, I do like to practice at long range in the yard. Um, and I mean, long range for me is, is 60 yards. Um, you know, and I, I'll shoot a little farther every now and then, but I, you know, for the most part, I mean, I, I don't, um, I don't take long shots at, at deer at all. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty rare that I take a shot over 25 yards. I mean, I, you know, I'll, I'll shoot a, you know, a 35 to 40 yard shot if, if everything lines up correctly. But I mean, I, I don't know. I found with whitetails, at least under the conditions that I hunt them, like if you let it, a 40 yard shot will often become a 15 yard shot, you know, if you're just patient. Um, and, and so, I mean, I I think to that degree, 
maybe I do kind of have that same mindset and that, you know, I'm not stressed about taking them. But I mean, you know, like even the Western hunts that I've, that I've done, I mean, I've, I've shot quite a few antelope and some mule deer. And I mean, even most of the shots out West are usually still 30 yards and in. I mean, you yeah. know, if you, if you work at it and, uh, and, and, and it comes together, I mean, it, you know, I, th- I think the, you know, the, the potential is always there on a Western hunt to, to need to take a longer shot. But I, you know, I think at the end of the day, really, regardless of what critter you're after, bow hunting is a, it's a pretty close range game, you know? So, yeah. um, but yeah, I mean, I, um, you know, I used to shoot a lot of arrows in a day's time and I, you know, anymore, um, like I shoot as much to kind of keep myself in shape, um, as much to, as I do to work on my mechanics, you know, and I, I, I definitely find that, um, especially as I get closer to deer season, I, I'm like, my shooting drills are more efficient if I concentrate on taking, you know, fewer shots in a, in a practice session. And I, and I'll often pick, you know, and I mean, it's a product of working from home, but I, I'll often pick up my bow and step outside and shoot three shots into the 3d target and come back in and hang my bow up. And I might do that five or six times during the day, you know, at, at different ranges. And, um, and I like to go out and shoot a lot without a range finder, just kind of guesstimating ranges and things like that. And I, you know, and I, I think that helps you keep sharp, especially in the woods. But, um, you know, I don't, uh, I'm, I'm not into the, the competition and stuff as I used to be. I really enjoyed it. Um, but I, I just don't have the time for it. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel the same way. And I, I kind of, I, I kind of have a similar shooting strategy where, you know, I can shoot right outside my office, you know, I walk outside my yeah. basement and I can shoot there. And I really, for me, it, it feels like most of the time when I'm doing that now, when I step out, shoot three or four arrows at different ranges, it almost feels like it's more for me mentally. Like I just want to mm-hmm. know I can do this at 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever I want to shoot. And then it just, it's the same thing. I know I've talked about this a lot when I, I'm pretty religious when I go on hunts now if if I have the chance, especially, you know, if you're in a tent camp and you're going out for an evening sit, you know, you have nothing to do all day long a lot of times on yeah. these hunts. Just shooting a couple arrows before. Right before you leave. Yep, man, I do it every, every time. Dude, um, it, I guess I think that makes a huge, you know, I mean, I, a lot of people, I think, fall into the trap of they shoot all summer, deer season comes in, and then they don't pick their bow up for a month. And, you know, I definitely think that is a mistake. Yeah. Um, you know, I do, uh, you know, and again, like it's easy for me because I do work from home and, and set my own schedule. And so, um, but I, it's pretty rare that I will go out for an evening hunt and not step out and shoot my bow a couple of times. And usually I do it, you know, I, I'll get dressed and get all my yeah. stuff on. I, you know, and I keep, you know, I mean, my, my quiver loaded with broadheads and stuff, but I, I keep, you know, a couple arrows with field points right there handy. And I, you know, and I, I pick my bow up right before I go and I, and I shoot a couple of times and, and my wife, Michelle, um, you know, she, uh, <laughs> she's one of the most superstitious bow hunters that, you know, I've ever met. I mean, she's got all these little things, you know, that, uh, little trinkets and rituals that she does and she will shoot one arrow, you know, um, whenever she gets ready to, to go hunt. And, um, and she's even like careful about doing that. Like she makes sure that, she shoots one arrow and it's a good one. I'm like, you want to shoot again? She's like, Nope, I'm done. I, I'm not, I'm not shooting again. And, and like, if, and she'll tell you, like if she shoots that one arrow and she feels a little bit bad about it, she's like, I shouldn't have done that. And she'll start stressing about it, you know? And so, um, I, I but I do think that like taking those couple of minutes right before you go hunt and like you make a couple of really good shots. Um, I think that makes a big difference. Oh, so, dude, I, sure. I'm a big believer, man. And I, I think, you know, that, that issue of, starting to shoot midsummer, late summer, shooting right before the season and then, then not taking any more practice shots. You know, you think about it, a lot of people are going to get their first shot, you know, Halloween, first week of November. And if you haven't target shot in two months, it, you know, psychologically there, I think you're underselling how, how detrimental that could be, you know, in your head to go, man, you know, like what, what if something changed? I mean, what if I bump my bow around a little bit or you're just not comfortable with it. And now you get that situation where, you know, you draw and you have to hold for 15, 20 seconds and yep. you're not used to it, you know? And I, I mean, I, I think that's where a lot of things come from where people are like, Oh, I had to hold for an hour, you know, a minute and a half on that deer. And it's like, oh yeah, right. But you know, you probably held longer than you're 
comfortable with. And yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I, sure. I just, I, I think there's a, there's a huge benefit to that. And I, I see this, I, I don't, I don't do it as much anymore because I don't have time, but we have, a, we have some really nice walkthrough ranges pretty close to my house and, you know, it fills up in August and August yeah. when everybody, and I'll go out there and I'll see guys shooting compounds who can barely get their bow back and can't hit a four by four block target you know one of the big range targets they're missing that completely at 20 yards and it's like three weeks before the season <laughs> yeah yeah it's kind of a lost cause at that point you know so um well yeah it, a lot of it you see is the physical part isn't there you know they're they're pulling too much weight and they're not used to it and yeah. you know that's just all that leads to is just the the, the mental sand the you know the mental sandcastle just crumbles and you go everything comes with that you know yeah, it's 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 dangerous ground, man. Will this is this has been a lot of fun, buddy. What would you say in all of your you know testing bows, testing broadheads? Let's let's talk about those quick and then wrap this up. In testing bows and and done, doing all the stuff you've done, what would you recommend? What's one thing you would tell the average bow hunters going out to buy a new bow? What what should he think about first? Um, don't get so hung up on brand loyalty. And it's, uh, I, I was actually um, doing another podcast and, and had a very similar question from that host. And, and I gave the same answer. You know, I think, you know, in the bow hunting world, you know, like every bow that we test every year is is pretty damn good. Um, you know, there, there's not a bow that we tested this year that I wouldn't hunt with. Um, and, and, you know, but like my job and your job as people who review equipment is to, lay them side by side and find the differences in them. And sometimes, and, and there are differences in them, you know, as, as good as they all are, some of them are decidedly better than others. Yep. And, you know, many times the only way that you're going to figure that out is to shoot a bunch of bows side by side. And, you know, if, if you go into it thinking, well, um, I'm only a Matthews guy. That's all I've ever shot, and that's all I'm going to shoot. Or I'm only a Hoyt guy. And anybody else, anybody that doesn't like Hoyt's a dumbass, you know. Um, and, I mean, you see that in the bow world probably more so than than any other. I, I don't know what it is, but people are just fiercely brand loyal. And, I mean, it's it's it's, it's kind of one of the endearing things about the bow world, you know. Um, but, you know, what you may find, like, beyond – Beyond brand names, there may be a real difference in the draw cycle of another brand of bow that um, not only not only subjectively feels better to you, but it might fit your shooting style better. And you might shoot a lot better with that bow than you ever have with the bow that you grew up with and that you think that like that's the only brand that exists. Yeah. And uh, and so what I would say is like all of these companies are making outstanding bows like for the quality, you know, the, the quality wise, like they're, they're all good bows. Um, but you will find differences uh, b between those bows. You know, they're, they're kind of meant for different shooting styles and no one bow can fit everybody. Um, and different people have different shooting styles like me in particular. I like a bow that um, that has a pretty smooth, constant draw cycle. I don't like a real sharp drop into the back wall, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of people do. Like a lot of people really like that, you know, kind of something that almost kind of clicks into the into the back wall. Yeah. Um, and I I tend to shoot a bow uh, with a you know with a shallow kind of demanding valley. I tend to shoot a bow like that pretty well, you know, mm -hmm. one that feels like it. It almost might jump away from you. I, I, I don't know if it makes me concentrate a little bit more, but it's been a trend that I've seen through 10 years of doing bow testing or nearly 10 years of doing bow testing and shooting all these bows from different manufacturers. Like that's something that I've seen, like for my particular shooting style, I, a lot of times I can draw a bow now um, because of what I know and think I'm probably going to shoot this bow pretty well. Yep. And so that's, that's what I would tell people. Um, you know, if you are shopping for a new bow, go into the shop with an open mind um, and try a Matthews, a PSC, a Hoyt, a Martin, you know, try everything that's on the shelf, you know, yep. um, be sure that the specs fit you, be sure that the draw length fits you. Um, and then, and then try them all, you know, and, and shoot them, as much as you can, that, that would probably be my biggest, uh, my biggest bit of advice because there are differences from, from one bow to the next. Yeah. I, I could not agree more. And the only thing I would add on to that is 
do not believe somebody who's getting paid to sell bows. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I, I see very often on social media and other, other avenues where somebody is promoting brand company X or Y. And I know for a fact they've been getting paid for that company for a decade yeah. and they yeah. don't shoot anything else. And how, how could you, and they, they may be promoting very good products, but how could you possibly trust somebody who's been getting paid to promote a specific brand and hasn't shot the other ones? Like right. there's, there is, and that, that's the thing, you know, I, I know you get hit up for this and I, I do all the time. Like what's the best bow out there? And it's like, Oh man, like, like you said, you got to go out and shoot a whole bunch of different ones to find out which one works for you. And I, that, that was one thing that really blew my mind from year to year shooting a bunch of bows and setting them up and testing them was very rarely did two years in a row. I go, that one's the best one for me. Yeah. It was yeah. oftentimes I'd find a new one. And like you said, it wasn't like I hated any of them. I was like, okay, right. you could, I, if I had to, I could hunt with any of these, but yeah. there was there, I'd find one. And, you know, like I can think back to some bows, you know, like the Bowtech guardian, the elite GT 500 and some of these bows we had in the past that just worked so well for me. Yeah. And then, you know, like the next year, you know, I, I think Bowtech went from the guardian to the 82nd airborne was maybe the next year. One of the ones, and I, I couldn't shoot that bow. And yeah. I was like, devout with that guardian back in the yep. day and you know elite the same thing happened to me and you see this happen over time or prime or matthews and so keep keep an open mind when you're when you're out there shopping uh broadheads when you're testing broadheads I, i'm sure you get asked about broadheads constantly anything you would tell the average whitetail hunter he's going out he's going to buy two packages of broadheads we hope <laughs> at least for the season <laughs> what are you what are you telling them well um Definitely shoot them on targets. Um, I, you know, you like to think that most people check their broadheads, um, and you like to think that, uh, you know, if your bow's tuned, that every broadhead is going to shoot like a field point. You know, I just did this broadhead test, and I, you know, and I rung out, I think twenty five, you know, new new heads, and and in various categories, fixed and mechanical, and I did a, a crossbow broadhead test, and even with bows that I knew were perfectly tuned um, and, and from crossbows for that matter, some of them just don't hit the same field points, yeah. um, especially when you get out beyond 30 yards. Um, and so I would say that is the number one thing to check. Uh, number two, make sure they're sharp. Some of these broadheads are not sharp out of the package. They, they, to be as lethal as they can be, they they must be sharp. And now they can be made to be very sharp, some of them, and, and some of them can't be. Um, you know, kind of, I really thought, like, I want to be afraid to handle my broadheads. Mm -hmm. um, beyond that, I mean, if it's sharp and it hits where you aim it, it it'll do, it, any of them on the market, it'll do exactly what you need it to do. You just have yeah. to put it where it needs to be. Yeah, um, the sharp thing's huge. We, we kind of got away from that a little bit. And I just noticed... Uh, in in G five strikers, they're actually sending them out with a band aid in there, with a band -aid. <laughs> <laughs> which is awesome. Uh, yeah, but I, I'll, I'll add one thing on the broadheads from my experience: uh, you will not get a great deal on broadheads. And so, if you go out and you want to buy fifteen dollars broadheads for you know fifteen dollars for a, a three pack of broadheads, you're probably getting Chinese made crap. That's not going to hold up very well, not be very sharp. They're just, I'm not saying you need to go out and buy, you know, $100 broadheads. I'm just saying material wise and, uh, you know, the, the level of precision, you know, tolerances, yep. all that stuff. Yep. You want good stuff. Like this is there. There are places you support party rare. Yeah. By far. Yep. And there are, there are, there are things you can save money on in hunting. This is this should not be one of them. It's the same thing. Like you know, you you talk to people who are turkey hunting. They're like, I'm not going to buy a heavy shot. I can just buy this. I'm like, man, this is the cheapest part. You know, like yeah, yeah. You're going to get you know one or two chances all spring or all fall. Yeah. Um, and you you want to skimp on your broadhead or your yeah. shotgun shell? Um, that doesn't make yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. I mean, I my broadhead test. You know, I. I I weighed everything on a, on a powder scale to measure consistency. Um, you know, we accuracy tested everything. And then we actually had, um, I think like 35 
cattle rib cages that my butcher gave me. And we suspended these things from, you know, from chains and shot through them. And um, most of the broadheads zipped through them with no problem and, you know, broke the bones. And, you know, there might have been some damage to the blades, but uh, some of them broke. And almost without almost without exception, you know, the ones that, that broke uh, were more the budget price point broadheads, you know, and you could just tell like they had cheaper metals um, and, you know, and, and, it, and it shows. So is that really what you want to have, uh, you know, when you've got to take a little bit of a quartering shot on the buck of a lifetime, you know, like I want something that I know, you know, if I do my part, the broadhead's going to do its part. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, you could probably think about it this way. Imagine yourself watching that buck walk in and you know, there was an option just to stop time and say, hey, you can drop an extra $20 bill into the somebody else's piggy bank and you have a 10% or 20% greater chance of killing this deer, 50% or whatever. You'd pay yeah. it. <laughs> you'd, yeah. be, you'd be going for your, your wallet so fast it wouldn't even be funny. So don't don't cheap out on that. Will, your writing is all over uh, Field & Stream, obviously probably where you're most well-known for. You, uh, They can find you in other places. Where, where can everybody find your stuff? Well, Field and Stream is, uh, you know, is definitely the primary publication. Um, I'm hunting editor there. Um, I do uh, I do some freelance work elsewhere, mainly for Ducks Unlimited. Um, did a story for a little fishing story for Realtree the other day. Um, I was editor of their website uh, once upon a time and, and enjoyed doing that. But uh, you know, Field and Stream is definitely the definitely the main stop. You know, both in the in the magazine and, and online, and some of the work you know crosses over, especially like the bow test and the gear reviews and things crosses over into outdoor life too. Yep, yep, awesome, buddy. Thank you so much for coming on. Yep, thanks, Tony. I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for listening. I can't honestly put into words how much I appreciate anyone taking the time to check into the Hunt for Real podcast. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe so you can get the latest episodes each week as we drop them. You can also find us at huntforreal.com, our YouTube channel where we'll be putting up tips and films throughout the year, as well as through all the usual suspects when it comes to social media. Again, thank you so much for listening.